Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 235, recorded May 26, 2021. And I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Vincent Warmadam. We talked about Vincent a while ago and got his name wrong. And he told us a story <laughs> that was good, uh, that um, that we accidentally pronounced his name, uh, what, Wanderman. Yes. <laughs> so sorry uh, about that. That's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I, I, I was bragging to my wife that I was on the podcast and then I was uh, announced as Vincent Wanderman and she's still kind of philosophical about the whole thing. But uh, it, was, it was a fun introduction. It's the best, uh, best, best mispronunciation of my life. Let me put it that way. It's, it's your alter ego. It's yes. like your spy name. Yeah. <laughs> I'll well, take it. Um, well, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Should we jump into the first step topic? Sure. Okay. Um, well, I think we, we covered, we mentioned uh, last time that Flask 2.0 was out. And, um, and then Michael had, um, you had, you talked with somebody, didn't you? Um, uh, I did. I had David Lord and also uh, Philip Jones on Talk Python to basically announce Flask 2.0 and talk about all their features. Yeah. And, um, and that was a great episode. I listened to both those, or listened to that. It was great. Uh, the, uh, what I wanted to cover was a couple articles, or an article and video. So, uh, first off, uh, we've got a link to the change list. So, if um, actually I lost the change list, yeah, there it is. Uh, so you can read through that, um, and maybe that's exciting to you. But I, I like a couple other ways. So there's a uh, um, an article by Patrick Kennedy, um, async and Flask 2.0, and I really like this this article. It goes through uh, kind of describing what it means to have async in Flask and how, how it works with some nice little diagrams. It's totally uh, appreciate diagrams that. are always nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Pictures. Yes. Um, and then a description of the ASGI and why we don't need it yet. Um, and I'm not sure that may, I'm not sure what the, the, the framework, the timeline is for, for uh, Flask, if they're going to do it more, but there is a discussion of that. It's not completely async um, yet. There's uh, been a, there was a lot of discussion with David and Philip that they may be leaving court to take the place of full on okay ASGI flask and the idea being that there's there's a lot of stuff that kind of has to change especially around the extensions and you get nearly that but not exactly that by using the G event async stuff that's in regular flask and that integrates in if you just do an async def method in your regular Flask, but if you want true async IO integration, then they basically were saying for the time, for the foreseeable future, instead of import Flask and go in that, just import court and wherever you see Flask, replace it with the word court. Okay. Hmm. Um, and the, but there's other, there's other cool stuff other than the async that's coming into Flask 2.0. So I appreciated there's also um, a video from, um, we don't want it to play, um, from Miguel Grinberg. <laughs> um, and, uh, talking about um, some of the some of the new stuff in in Flask, and I really like this. Uh, one of the things that is uh, he covers right away is the new route decorators, and yeah, those are nice. Might yes. be just a syntax thing, but it's really nice. So you used to have to say app route, and then methods equals post or method, you know, list the method, and now you can just say app post. Um, that's nice. Um, and then a really clean discussion of uh, the WebSocket support. Uh, with Flask, and then goes he goes in to talk about the async, and with that also does a little demo uh, timing it. And I was actually surprised at how how 
like how easy it was to to set up this um uh this demo of of timing uh and showing that he showed that um you could increase the users uh and then still and still get um it doesn't really increase your response time or how many how many uh users per uh, request per second doesn't increase because of the way the Flask 2.0 is done but it was nice um and then he also uh talked about some of the extensions that he he wrote to uh that work with Flask 2.0 and stuff so it was definitely worth the listen Oh, that's always cool. Like that's always the thing when you get like well, Flask is like a pretty big project. So when there's like a new upgrade of that, one of the things that people sometimes forget is like, oh, well, like all the plugins do they kind of still work? So it's nice if someone does a little bit of the homework there and so says, well, here's a list of stuff that I've checked and that's at least compatible. Well, um, he's mostly doing some. Uh, so for instance, one of the things is around uh, 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 which I don't know which. Um, no, just some of the WebSocket stuff has changed and some of the other things have changed. And he has like some more some different shims that he was used recommending uh, some things before, but now you don't have to do, you don't have to swap out some things. So like, for instance, some of the extensions were allowing for WebSockets required you to swap out uh, the server for a different server and you don't have to anymore. So uh, like that, right. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, cool. yeah. A cu- couple of big other things that come to mind. One, they've dropped Python to support and even three, five and below. I mean, we're at this point where 3.5 is like old school legacy, which surprises me. That still feels new. Yeah. I remember when it came out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was when async and await arrived, right? So that was the big big deal there. But it doesn't have F-strings, so it's... Yeah, that's the killer feature. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so there's that. And they also said that you are not going to need to change your deployment infrastructure if you want to run async flask. You can just Hmm. push a new version and it's good to go. So yeah, a lot, a lot of neat things there. Uh, very good. Nice. Um, what do we got next, Michael? Well, what if Python were faster? That would be nice. That's always good. We actually talked <laughs> about Cinder. Remember Cinder? Yeah. Face, from the Facebook uh, world. So that's one really interesting thing that is happening around Python. And there's a lot of cool stuff here. But remember, this is not supported. It's not meant mm. to be a new runtime just there to give ideas and motivation and, and examples and basically to run Instagram. On the other hand, Mike Driscoll tweeted out, hey, Python might get a two times speed up of the next version of Python. And you might want to check out Guido's slides from the Python Language Summit at the Virtual PyCon. That's exciting, right? Yes. I mean, so, yeah. If, if Guido is saying it, then, you know, <laughs> odds of it happening increase, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So a while ago, we actually covered what has now become known as the Shannon plan <laughs> for making Python faster a little bit each time over five years, uh, over the next four, at least, I guess, four years at that point, and how to make that happen. So some of these ideas come from there. And so here I'm pulling up the slides, and it you know, says, can we make C Python faster? If so, by how much? Could it be a factor of two? Could it be a factor of 10? And do we break people if we do things like this? So the Shannon plan, which was posted last October and we covered, talks about how do we make it 1.5 times faster each year, but do that four times. And because of compounding performance, I guess, <laughs> yeah, it's five times faster. All right. So there's that. Uh, Guido said, thank you to the pandemic. Thank you to boredom. I decided to apply at Microsoft and shocker, they hired him. <laughs> <laughs> so as part of that, it's kind of just like, hey, we think you're awesome. Why don't you just pick something to work on that will contribute back that'd be really cool 
So his project at Microsoft is around making Python faster, which I think is great. Cool. So yeah. So there's a team of folks, Mark Shannon, Eric Snow, and Guido, and possibly others, who are working with the core devs at Microsoft to make it faster, which is really cool. Everything will be done on the public GitHub, uh, GitHub repo. There's not like a secret branch that will be then dropped on it. So it's all just going to be PRs to github.com slash is it Python slash cPython, whatever the URL is, the public spot. And one of the main things they want to do is not break compatibility. So that's important. Also said, uh, you know, what, what things could we change? Well, you can't change the base object like um, pi, what is it? Pi obj, the, basically the, the base class, right? Pi object pointer, that's it, the pi object class. So that thing has to stay the same. And it really needs to keep reference counting semantics because so much is built on that. But they could change the bytecode that exists, the stack frame layout, the compiler, the interpreter, maybe make it a JIT compiler to JIT compile the bytecode, all of those types of things. So that's pretty cool. And they said, how are we going to reach two times speed up in 3.11? Uh, an adaptive specialized bytecode interpreter that will be more performant around certain operations, optimize... Um, frame stacks, faster calls, zero overhead exception handling, and things like integral internals. So maybe treating numbers differently, changing how PYC files. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Also putting the dunder dict for a class always at a certain known location because anytime you access a field, you have to go to the dunder dict, get the value out, and then read it. And I suspect the first thing that happens is, well, go find the dunder dict pointer and then go get the element out of it. So if every access could just go, nope, it's always you know one certain byte off in memory from where the class starts, that would save you know that sort of reversal there. So some pretty neat things. Yeah, I'm glad and you explained that because I read it before and I'm like, why would that help at all? Uh, I think it, it. I think you can uh, traverse one fewer pointers. Yeah, and in general, doesn't matter. But it, literally everything you ever touch ever, if you could cut in half the number of pointers you got to follow, that'd be good. Yeah, this is always one of those things that always struck me with um, when you're using Python, you don't think about these sorts of things. It's when, you, mm -hmm. when you're doing something in Rust or something, then you are confronted with the fact that you really have to keep track of where's the point you're pointing and memory and all that. And you take a lot of this stuff for granted. So it's great that people are still sort of going at it and looking for things to improve there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in like C, you do the, the arrow, you know, dash greater than sort of thing. Every pointer. So you're like, I'm following a pointer. I'm following a pointer. Like, you know it, right? <laughs> Here, you just, you, you, Write nice, clean code, and magic happens. <laughs> so let me round this out with who will benefit. So who will benefit? If you're running CPU-intensive pure Python code, that will get faster because the Python execution should be faster. Websites should be faster because a lot of that code is running in the Python space. And tools that happen to use Python. Who will not benefit so much? NumPy, TensorFlow, Pandas, all the code that's written in C, things that are IO-bound. So if you're waiting on something else, speeding up the part that goes to wait really matter multi-threaded code because of the gill at this point but eric snow is also working on the subinterpreters, which may fix that and so on so i like the last anyway, bullet though pretty neat stuff there's some peps out there i'll link to uh, i link to the tweet by mike driscoll but that'll take you tr straight to the github repo which has the pdf of the slides and people can check that out if they're interested i like the last bullet for the uh, previous slide to Things people that will not benefit code that's algorithmically <laughs> inefficient. Otherwise, if your code already sucks, it's not going to be better. 
It may be better, I, but it know, could be better. I was about to say, like, t- theoretically, it actually would go faster and just... <laughs> uh, just not as much better as it could, right? Yeah, it's, it, it, it would still be like N to the power of three or something like that, but it would be faster N to the power yeah. of three. Yeah, yeah. It won't change the the big O notation, but it might make it run quicker on wall time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Christopher Tyler out there in the live stream says, I know I, I still need to improve my code, but this would be great, right? I mean, it used to be that we could just wait six months a new cpu would come out that's like twice as fast as what we ran on before like oh now it's fast enough we're good that doesn't happen as much these days so it's it's cool that the run times are getting faster yeah and i mean let's, let's be honest python is also still used for like just lots of script tasks like hey i just need this thing on the command line that does the thing and i put that in cron uh, and like a lot of that will be nice if that just gets a little bit faster and it sounds like this will just uh, be right up that alley yeah and one of the things that i know has been a holding certain types of changes back has been concern about slowing down the startup time. Because if all mm. you want to do is run Python to make a very small thing happen, but like there's a big JIT overhead and all sorts of stuff, and it takes two seconds to start and a nanosecond, a microsecond to run, right? They don't want to put those kinds of limitations and kill that use case either. So yeah, it's, it's good to point that out. All right, Vincent, you're up next. Cool. Yeah. So uh, I dabble a little bit in fairness algorithms. It's, it's, it's a big, important thing. Um, so I get a lot of questions from people like, hey, if I want to do like machine learning and fairness, where should I start? And I don't think you should start with algorithms. Instead, what you should do is you should go check out this Python project called Dion. And the project's really minimal. The main thing that it really just does is it gives you a checklist of just stuff to check before you do like a big data science project at a, uh, like a big company or an enterprise or something like that. And they're really sensible things. They're, they're sort of uh, grouped together. So like, hey, uh, can I check off that I have informed consent and uh, collection bias? Can, like, can I check all of these things off? Uh, the main thing And it's are, literally a checkbox. You can check them off in the page to sort of get the feel. Of like, oh yeah, I, well, these well, are good. It goes further. So the thing is, this is an actual Python project. You can generate this as YAML for your GitHub profile. So like for your GitHub project, you actually have this checklist that has to be checked in Git. So, peop- so you know that people signed off on it. Like you can actually see the checklist. You can even maybe in your git log see who checked it off. Um, but what's really cool is two things. Like one, you can generate this checklist. Two, you can also customize the checklist. So if you are at a specific company of certain legal requirements, this tool actually kind of makes it easy to customize this very specific checklist for data projects. But the, the real killer feature, if you ask me, like again, all of these comments are good. Like is the data security uh, well done? Is the analysis reproducible? How do we do deployment? Like all of these things that are usually like things that go wrong and were obvious in hindsight. But the real killer feature is usually you have to convince people to take this serious. So what the website offers is like an example list. So for every single item that is on this checklist, they have one or two examples. Typically, these are like newspaper articles of places where this has actually gone wrong in the past. So if you need like like a really good argument for your boss, uh, like, hey, we got to take this serious. There's a newspaper article you can just send along as well. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's like it. It's yeah, no, it's, and, and the fact you can also generate Jupyter notebooks with this, you can customize it a little bit. Uh, the people that made this, uh, the company I think is called Driven Data. They host Kaggle competitions for like good causes. That's sort of a thing that they do there. Uh, but Dion is just a really cool project. Like I think if more people would just start with a sensible checklist uh, and, and work from there, uh, a lot of projects would immediately uh, be better for it. Yeah, this is this is really cool. So things are. Uh, can you go to the very bottom of that page? That you're on? Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, the, just the checklist. Just oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So there's some examples like um, make sure that you've accounted for unintended use. Have you taken steps to identify and prevent unintended uses and abuse? So like 
you created up, find my friends uh, in pictures. So like, yes. I want to find pictures my friends have taken of me. You could put it up and it would show you all the pictures your friends took, but maybe someone else is going to use that to, I don't know, try to fish you. Like, here's the picture of us together or I don't know, some some weird thing, right? Use it for like facial recognition and tracking when it had no such intent, right? Things like that. I think for, and uh, I might be, uh, well, so it's, it, didn't, it doesn't have this example. The best example <laughs> of unintended use there used to be this geo lookup company where you could give an IP address and it would give you like an actual address. However, sometimes you don't know where the IP address actually is. So you just give like the center point of like a US state or the country. So there used to be this house in the middle of Kansas, I think. It was yeah, like the, the center point. But the thing is, um, this they would get like FBI trucks driving by and like doing raids and stuff because they thought there were criminals there because the geo lookup service would always say like, ah, oh, the crooks at that IP address, that's this latitude longitude place. Right, right. We had a cyber attack. It was from this IP yeah. address. <laughs> Raid them, boys. And of course, it was just some poor farmer in the Midwest going, yeah. you know, yeah, no, but just like, the geographic center. Please stop raiding my farm. Yeah, but, but, but like the, the story was actually quite serious. Like, I think the person who lived there got like death threats at some point as well because of the same mistake. Yeah. So, like, this is stuff to take serious. Um, the one thing that I did like is the solution. I think now the the the, the, the instead of it pointing to the house in Kansas, I think it points to like uh, the center of the three big lakes, <laughs> like in Michigan. I think that's just the middle of a puddle <laughs> of water, basically, just to make it like obvious to the FBI squads that like, nah, this is not a person living there. Yeah, that's yeah. Good. but like. Darn these submarines are that they've moved underwater, <laughs> or or whatever. But I mean, but th that's why you want to have a checklist <laughs> like this. Like you're not gonna. The thing yeah. with unintended use is you, you. It's unintended, so you cannot really imagine it. But you at least should do the exercise, and that's what this list uh, does in a very yeah. sensible way. And more people should just do it. And there's interesting yeah. examples too. You just have a look. And there's also a little They're community. Interesting. There's a little community around it as well of like collecting these examples, and they have like a wiki page with examples that didn't make the front page cut. Um, so definitely recommend anyone interested in fairness, uh, start here. Um, I, I was curious, you, you brushed by it fairly quickly of fairness analysis, fairness analysis. Is that what you do? Um, so, uh, I just uh, don't know is, what that means. So could you, yeah, so, um, oh man, this is a, a longer, like this, this topic deserves more time than I'll give it. But the idea is that you might be able, we know that models aren't always fair, right? Like it can be that you have models that. Uh, for example, um, the Amazon was a nice example. So they had like a, a resume parsing algorithm uh, that basically favored men because they hired more men historically. So the algorithm would prefer men. Like this, oh, okay. This stuff that, like that kind of fairness. Okay. Right. Yeah. Historical, so th these have been our good employees. Let's find more like them. Exactly. So, and, this like is, and the thing is, you done <clears throat> get an algorithm that's unfair. So there are these machine learning uh, techniques and there's this community of researchers that try to look for ways like, can we improve the fairness of these systems? So we don't just optimize for accuracy. We also say, well, we, we want to make sure that subgroups are treated fairly and equally and stuff like that. Uh, so I dabble a little bit in this. There's this project I like to collaborate with. I, I open source a couple of things with these people. Uh, it's called Fair Learn. The main thing that I really like about the package is that it starts by saying fairness of AI systems is more than just running a few lines of code. <laughs> like it starts by acknowledging that. Uh, but they have mitigation techniques and algorithms and like tools to help you measure the unfairness. Um, it's like learn compatible as well, and uh, stuff to like. Having said all that, start here. Start like okay. start with a checklist. Don't worry <laughs> yeah. about the machine learning stuff just yet. Start here. Um, but yeah, nice. very cool. Before we move on, Connor Furster in the live chat says, "I'm glad the conversation of ethics and data science is enlarging. I think it's important about what we make." Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah. Totally. 
Now, before we do move on, though, let me tell you all <clears throat> about our sponsor for this episode, Sentry. So this episode is brought to you by Sentry. Thank you, Sentry. How would you like to l- remove a little bit of stress from your life? Do you worry that users may be having difficulties or encountering errors with your app right now? And would you even know it until they sent you that support email? How much better would it be to have the errors and performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded right in the report? With Sentry, it's not only possible, it's simple. On, we actually use Sentry on our websites. It's on Python by FM, It's on TalkPython training, all those things. And we've actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as we got the support email. They said, hey, I'm having a problem with the site. I can't uh, do this or that. I said, actually, I already saw the error. I just pushed the fix to production. So just try it again. <laughs> Imagine they're surprised. Nice. So surprise and delight your users. Create your Sentry account at pythonbytes.fm slash Sentry. And when you sign up, there's a got a promo code, redeem it. Make sure you put Python Bytes in that section or you won't get two months of free Sentry team plan, some other features, and they won't know it came from us. So use a promo code at pythonbytes.fm slash Sentry. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for supporting the show. Brian? Yeah. I like this so one that you picked here. You like this? I like it a lot. It's very good. It has pictures, <laughs> yeah. little animated things, and yeah. it, great looking tools. Yeah. So there's a, uh, it was an article that was sent to us. I can't remember who sent it. So apologies. Um, but it's an article called Three Tools to Track and Visualize the Execution of Your Python Code. And I always joke, <laughs> I don't know why executing your code just seems funny to me. I know it <laughs> just means run it, but it, you know, uh, chop its head off or something I don't know. anyway um <laughs> so the three tools uh the, the three tools he covers are l- l- um we don't cover this very much because i don't know how to pronounce it um l-o-g-u-r-u it's Logguru or Logguru. not sure um and then so Logguru is a pretty printer <laughs> with better exceptions so let's uh let's go ahead and look at that so it does exceptions like this so that, like breaks out your exceptions into colors and uh, it's just kind of a really great way to visualize it. And I would totally use this for if I was teaching, like if I was teaching um, a class or something, this might be a good way to uh, teach people how to look at uh, trace logs and error logs. Um, this is fantastic. And if you're out there listening and not seeing it, you should definitely pull up this site because the pictures really are, are what you need to tell quickly. Yeah. The value here. yeah one thing I, that's one, one of the one things I, I like about this article is that uh, lots of great pictures. So. One thing out of curiosity. So what I'm seeing here is that, for example, it says return number one divided by number two, and then you actually see the numbers that were in those variables. But do you have to, do you have to add like a decorator or something to get this output, or how does that work? Um, I, that's explained I, later, maybe. I don't remember uh, where, where. Yeah, it's explained later. I think. Yeah. 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 I th- I think you just pull it in and it just does it, but I'm not sure. Okay. Interesting. Anyway, um, the uh, so the other so that's log guru. Uh, then there's Snoop, which is um, which is kind of fun. Uh, that has uh, we'll pull down to Snoop. Should have had this already. Anyway, you, you put with Snoop, you can see uh, it prints lines of code being executed in a function. So it just runs your code and then prints out each line uh, in real time as it's going through it. Um, a little, you would hardly ever want this, I think, but when you do want it, I think it might be kind of kind of cool to watch um, watch it go along. And it, it it's a uh, you could also do this in a debugger, but if you didn't want a debugger, do a debugger. You can do this on the command well, line. Well, one of the things that most debuggers have that is a little challenging is you'll see the state, and you'll see the state change, and you'll see it change again. But in your mind, you've got to remember, okay, that was a 7, and then it was a 5, and then it was a 3. 
Oh, right. Yeah. Right. And here it'll, it'll actually reproduce each line, each block of code with the values over. If you are in a loop three times, it'll show like going through the loop three times with all the values set. And that's pretty neat. Yeah. I would also argue just for teaching recursion, I think this visualization is kind of nice because you see that you actually see like the indentation and the depth appear. Uh, so you can yeah, actually yeah. see like this function is called inside of this other function and there's a timestamp. Uh, yeah. So I would, I would also argue this one's pretty good for teaching. I, I like it. In fact, Connor on the live stream says, I'm teaching my first Python course tomorrow. So uh, yeah, thanks for this <laughs> timely article. <laughs> and a uh, real-time follow-up for the log guru, you have to import logger and then you got to put a decorator on the function and then it'll capture like that super detailed output. Okay. Oh, then that's, and that's probably exactly what you want because you don't really want to do that for everything probably. So there'll be yeah. something you're working on that you want to trace. So um, heart rate is the last tool that we want to talk about. And it visualize, it's, it's a way to visualize the execution of a Python program in real time. So this is something we have not covered before, but it's, um, I thought there was a little video. Yeah, um, it kind of goes through and um, does a little, uh, like a heat map sort of thing on the side of your code. Um, so when it's running, you can kind of see that different things get hit more than others. So that's... Uh, that's fast. It's almost like a profiler, sort of. Not speed, though. It's just number of hits. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about this, but it's pretty. So, see. Yeah. Same. But uh, the LogGuru one looks amazing. I thought LogGuru was also like a general logging tool. Like it does more, I think, than just yeah. uh, things for, uh, for debugging. Yeah. I think it's a general logging tool as well. Okay. Okay. But I, I guess it logs errors really good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so logger, anyway. logger dot catch decorator. Okay, well, could probably do other things with the logger then as well. But having a good logging debugger catcher is always welcome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, let's talk about ducks. I mean, Brian, you and I are in Oregon. Go ducks. ducks. Is that a, well? I know your daughter goes there. My my daughter goes to OS OSU. So go go beeves, I guess. Go beeves. Whatever ducks. We're gonna talk duck databases anyway and data science. So Alex Monahan sent over to us saying, hey, you should check out this article about DuckDB, which is a thing I'm now learning about, and its integration, its direct integration with pandas. So instead of taking data from a database, loading into a pandas data frame, doing stuff on it, and then getting the answer out, you basically put it into this embedded database, DuckDB, which is SQLite-like, and then, no, sorry, you put it into a pandas data frame, but then the, the query engine of DuckDB can query it directly without any data exchange without transferring it back and forth between the two systems or formats. That's pretty cool, right? So let me pull this. Oh, that's here. Hannes. I know him. Oh, nice. He's from, yeah, he's from Amsterdam. Yeah, very cool. So here's the idea. We've got uh, SQL on pandas, basically. So if we had a data frame, here they have a really simple data frame with just a, you know, a single array, but it could be a very complex data frame. And then what you can do is you can import DuckDB and you can say DuckDB.Query and then you write something like, so uh, one of the columns is called A in the data frame and you could say select sum of A from the data frame. How cool is that? I don't know. Is it cool? <laughs> it's, it's very cool. So <laughs> then you can also, there's also a two data frame on the result. So what happens here is this is parsed by DuckDB, which has an, an advanced query optimizer for things like joins and filtering and indexes and all that kind of stuff. And then it says, oh, okay, so you said there's a thing called MyDF, 
which I'll just go look in the locals of my current call stack and see if I can find that. Oh, yeah, that is neat. So you can write arbitrary SQL. And this one looks pretty straightforward. You're like, yeah, yeah, okay, interesting, interesting. But you can come down here and do more interesting things. Uh, let's see, I'll pull up some examples. So they do a select aggregation group by thing. So select these two things, and then also do a sum, min, max, and average on some part of the data frame. And then you pull it out of the data frame and you group by two of the elements. Right. And they show also what that would look like if you did that in true pandas format. That's cool. And they say, well, it's about two to three times faster in the DuckDB version. That is interesting. That's interesting, right? But then they say, well, what if we wanted not to just group by, but we wanted a filter? Seems real simple, like where the ship date is less than 1998. No big deal. But because the way that this can be really efficiently figured out by the query optimizer, uh, it turns out to be much faster. So 0.6 seconds on single-threaded, or it actually supports parallel execution as well. So multi-threaded. Um, they tested on a system that only had two cores, but it can be many, many cores. So it's faster, 0.4 seconds when threaded versus 2.2 seconds, sorry, 3.5 seconds on regular pandas. But there's this more complicated, non-obvious thing you can do called a manual pushdown in pandas, which will help drive some of the efficiency before other work happens. And then they finally show one at the very end where there's more stuff going on that query optimizer does. So the threaded one's 0.5 seconds, regular pandas is 15 seconds. So all that's cool. And what's really neat is it all just happens like on the data frame. Yeah, there's two things about that that are pretty interesting. Like one is we shouldn't underestimate how many people are still new to pandas, but do understand SQL. So just for that use case, I can imagine, you know, yeah, you're going to get, get a lot of people on board. But the fact that there's a query optimizer in there that's able to work on top of pandas, that's also pretty neat. Because I'm assuming it's doing clever things like, oh, uh, I need to filter data. I should do that as early on as possible. And my query plan is doing some of that logic internally. Um, and the fact that you can paralyze it because parallel uh, pandas doesn't paralyze easily. It's also something. Yeah, I that, uh, don't know that it paralyzes at all. You've got to go to something like Dask. Yeah, I mean, so there are these, there are some, there are some, some tricks that you could do, but they're tricks. They're not really natively supported. Uh, right, right. But, uh, but just having a SQL interface is neat. Yeah. Yeah, this is pretty neat. And also now I learned about DuckDB. So apparently that's a thing, which is uh, pretty <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So it's it's in process, just like SQLite. It's written in C++ 11 with no dependencies. Ooh. It's supposed to be super fast. So this is also a cool thing that, you know, maybe I'll check out unrelated to querying pandas. But the fact that you can, I think is pretty cool. It's got a great name. <laughs> yeah. You know, another database out there I hear a lot about, but I've never used or have really an opinion about is CockroachDB. I'm not a huge fan of just on the, the name, although it has some interesting ideas. I think it's like meant to communicate resiliency and it can't be killed because it's like geolocated and it's just going to survive. But yeah, ducks. I, I'll go with ducks. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And then uh, chat out in, the, out in the live stream chat, Christopher says, so DuckDB is worrying on Pandas data frames or... Can you load the data method chain with DuckDB and reduce memory? I believe you could do either. Like you could load data into it and then there's a two data frame option that probably could come out of it. But I think, I think just very briefly. Basically right on it. Yeah, uh, doesn't, uh, I, I might've just seen it briefly while, while you were scrolling in the blog post, but I believe it also said that it supports the Parquet file format. Uh, it does. So the nice thing about Parquet is you can kind of index your data cleverly. Like you can index it by date on the file system. And then presumably, if you were to write the SQL query in DuckDB, it would only read the files of the appropriate date if you put a filter in there. 
So I can imagine just because of that reason, uh, DuckDB on its own might be more memory performant than Pandas, I guess. Uh, yeah, perhaps. That's, that's Very cool. Stuff like that you could do. Yeah, and then uh, Nick Harvey also says, I wonder if it's read-only, if you can insert or update. I don't know for sure, but you can see in some of the places they are doing like projections. So for example, they're doing a select sum min max average, like that's generating data that goes into it. And then the result is a data frame. So you can just add into the data frame afterwards if you want to be more manual about it. Yeah. All right. Vincent, you got the last one? Yeah. So um, the thing is, I work for a company called Raza. We make uh, software with Python to make uh, virtual assistants uh, easier to make in Python. And um, I was looking in our community showcase, and I just found this project that just made me kind of feel hopeful. Um, so this is a personal project, I think. Uh, so we have a name here, uh, Amit, and uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, Arvind. But what they did is they used Raza kind of like a Lego brick, but they made this uh, assistant, if you will, that you can send a text message to. Now, what it does, uh, I'll zoom in a little bit for people on YouTube that they might be able to see the GIF. But it, uh, every 10 minutes, it scrapes the weather information, the fire hazard information, and I think evacuation information from local government in California, uh, meant to help people during wildfire season. Um, and they completely open sourced this project as well. So you, uh, there's a linked GitHub project where you can just see how they implemented it. And it's a fairly simple implementation. Uh, they use Raza with wow. a Twilio API. Um, they're doing some neat little clever things here with like, uh, if you misspelled your city, they're using like a, a fuzzy string matching library to make sure that even if you misspell your city, they can still try to give you like accurate information. Um, but what they do is they just have this endpoint where you can send the text message to like, give me the update of San Francisco. And then it will tell you all the weather information, air quality information, and that sort of thing. And if you need to evacuate, they will also be able to tell you that. Um, and what I just loved about this, um, if you look at the way that they described it, um, these this was just two people who knew Python who were a little bit disappointed with the communication that was happening. But because the APIs were open, they just built their own solution. And like thousands of people <laughs> used this. Uh, and what's even greater is that, um, you know, if your mobile coverage isn't great, uh, watching a YouTube video or like trying to get audio in can be tricky, but a text message is really low bandwidth. So for a lot of people, this is like a great way to communicate. Um, and of course, I'm yeah. a, little, a little bit biased because I work for Raza and I think it's awesome that they use Raza to build this. Uh, but again, uh, the whole thing is just open sourced. You can go to their GitHub and you can just, um, if I'm not mistaken, there's like the, the scraping job of, of the endpoints is actually in here <laughs> as well. Uh, but this is like exactly what you want. Just a couple of open APIs and sort of citizen science building something that's useful for the community. It's great. Yeah, I like it. And text message is probably a really good way to communicate for disasters, right? Yes. You're possibly in a place where, you know, LTE is crashed, Wi-Fi is out, right? Like if even if you're on edge, you know, text should still get there. Exactly. Unless you're on, on iMessage, then you're out of luck. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> Sort of. Well, yeah. So I live in Europe, so I cannot comment on that, of course. But uh, it's a little bit different here. But no, but like the the data service, you can just look in here. And this is like again, I, I like these little projects that don't need anyone's permission to help people. Like that stuff. They're like, ah, oh, this is good stuff. Um, yeah. And, they all, and the thing that I also really like about it is, it's really just sending you a text message with like air quality information and like enough information, and that's good. It's not like they're trying to make like a giant predictive model on top of this or anything like that. They're just really doing enough and enough is plenty. Like that's the thing I really love about this little demo. Um, and of course, yeah. using Raza, which is great, but uh, this is uh, the kind of stuff that uh, uh, this is why I get up in the morning. Projects like this. <laughs> that's yeah, pretty cool. fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love it. That's a really good one. Brian, is that it? Uh, yeah, that's it. It's our, our six items 
Um, any extras that you want to talk about? I might have one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm totally tooting my own horn here, but this is a project I made a little while ago. Um, but I think people might like it. Um, so at some point it kind of struck me that people were making these machine learning algorithms and they're trying to like on a two dimensional plane, trying to separate the green dots from the red ones from the blue ones. And I just started wondering, well, why do you need an algorithm if you can just maybe draw one? So very typically you got these like clusters of red points and clusters of blue points. And I just started wondering, maybe all we need is like this little user interface element that you can load from a Jupyter notebook. And maybe once you've made a drawing, it'd be nice if we can just turn it into a scikit-learn model. So there's this project called Human Learn that does exactly this. It's a tool of little buttons and, and like widgets uh, that I've made to just make it easier for you to like do your domain knowledge thing and turn it into a model. So one of the things that it currently features is like the ability to draw a model, uh, which is great because domain experts can just sort of uh, put their knowledge in here. Um, it can do outlier detection as well, because if a point falls outside of one of your drawn circles, that also means that it's probably an outlier. Uh, but it also has a tool in there that allows you to turn any Python function, like any like custom Python written function, into a scikit-learn compatible tool as well. So if you can just declare your logic in a Python function, that can also just be a machine learning model from now on. Um, there's an extra fancy thing if people are interested. Uh, I just made a little uh, blog post about that, um, where I'm using a very advanced coloring technique using parallel coordinates. Um, very fancy technique. I won't go into too much depth there, but what's really cool is that you can basically show that a drawn model can outperform um, the model that's on the Keras Deep Learning blog, <laughs> which I just thought was a very cool little wow. feature as well. Um, the project's called Human Learn. It's just uh, components for inside of your Jupyter Notebook to make sort of domain knowledge and human learning and all that good stuff better. Um, also, with the fairness thing in mind, I really like the idea that people sort of can do the exploratory data analysis bit and at the same time also work on their first machine learning model as a benchmark. That's what human learn does. So if people are sort of curious to play around with that, um, please do. It's open source, pip install. Please use it. I'm impressed. This is cool. This is, is really right? cool. Yeah. Well, Maddie, out in the live stream asks, uh, how does it handle ND data? So, and I guess it's three or larger. Yeah, so you can make, um, like, uh, so if you have four columns, you can make two charts with two dimensions. That's one way of dealing with it. And there's like a little trick where you can combine all of your drawings into one thing. If you go to the examples, though, the parallel coordinates chart that, that you see here, uh, that has 30 columns and it works just fine. I do think like 30 is probably like the limit. Uh, but the parallel coordinates chart, I mean, you can make a subselection across multiple dimensions. That just works. Um, it's it's really hard to explain a parallel coordinates chart on a podcast, though. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, so this is like a super interactive visualization thing with lots of colors and stuff happening. I'm sorry, you have to go to the docs to fully experience that, I guess. But uh, but there but but again, also, um, like if you it, let's say you work for a fraud office and and someone asks you like, hey, without looking at any any data, can you come up with rules that's probably fraud? And you can kind of go, yeah, if you're 12 and you earn over a million dollars, that's probably weird. <laughs> Someone should just look at that. And the thing is, you can just write down rules that way. And that should already be, can already be turned into a machine learning model. You don't always need data. And that's the thing I'm trying to cover here. Like, just make it easier for you to declare stuff like that. It's a more human approach. Anyway. Nice. Brian, I cut you off. Were you going to say something? Oh, one Sorry. of the things, I, I don't know if we've covered this already, but um, we've talked about comcode.io a lot on this uh, podcast. And you're the, person behind it right <laughs> yeah i am yeah so it's uh it's been a fun little side project that i've been doing for a year now yeah yeah so nice videos i like how short they are so thanks yeah. now so the, 
that's I like to hear. Like people tell me that, and that's also the thing that I was kind of going for. Like I love the you know those when you watch a video, there's like a lightning talk, and you learn something in five minutes. Yeah. Oh, that's an amazing feeling. Like that's the thing I'm trying to capture there a little bit. Like if if it takes more than five minutes to get a point across, then uh, I, I should go on to a different topic. But I'm happy to hear you like it. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. How about Mike? You, Michael, anything extras? Well, I had two. Now I have three because I was reading the source code of one of Vincent's projects there. And as we were talking and I learned about Fuzzy Wuzzy. (laughs) (laughs) So Fuzzy Wuzzy was being used in that emergency disaster recovery awareness thing. And it's fuzzy string matching in Python. And it says fuzzy string matching like a boss, (laughs) which you got to love. So it was like slight misspellings and plural versus not plural and whatnot. And Brian even uses um, Hypothesis, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and PyTest. Yeah, and PyTest, of course. Yeah. But anyway, that that's pretty cool. I just, I just discovered that. So uh, Fuzzy Wuzzy is a pretty cool uh, tool. The only thing I don't like about it, and this is the one thing I do have to mention, uh, it's, it is my understanding that Fuzzy Wuzzy is a slur in, in certain regions of the world. That's, it's, so in terms of mm. naming a package, they could have done better there, but I think they only realized that in hindsight. Other than that, there's some cool stuff in there. Definitely, uh, just I, when I learned about this, I did make the comment to myself, like, okay, I should always acknowledge it whenever I talk about the package. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's definitely useful stuff in there. Fuzzy string matching yeah. is a useful problem to have a tool for. Yeah, very cool. And uh, PyCon way out in the future, 2024, 2025 announcement is out. So the next two PyCons are already theoretically in Salt Lake City. So hopefully we actually go to Salt Lake City and not just go, and we'll virtually imagine it was there, right? Like this year. Uh, but last two years, because of the pandemic, Pittsburgh lost its opportunity to have PyCon. So not just once, but twice. So they are rescheduling the next one back into Pittsburgh. So folks there will be able to go and be part of PyCon. That's pretty wow. cool. Glad so, they did that. <laughs> because of Corona, they've now been able to plan four years ahead of the way. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's, that's uh, everything's upside down now. And then also, I just want to give a quick shout out to an episode that I think is coming out this week on TalkPython. I'm pretty sure that's the schedule called CodeCarbon.io. And it is a, if I can pull it up here, it is a, both a dashboard that lets you look at the carbon generation, the CO2 footprint of your machine learning models as you specifically around the training of the models. So what you do is you pip install somewhere in here, you pip install this emission tracker, and then you just say, start tracking, train, stop tracking. It it uses your location, your data center, the local energy grid, the sources of energy from all that. And it'll say like, oh, if you actually switch to say the Oregon AWS data center from Virginia, you'd be using more, um, you would be using more hydroelectric rather than, I don't know, gas or whatever, right? Hmm. So uh, just, we were talking about some of the ethics and cool things that we should be paying attention to. And I feel like the sort of energy impact of, model training might be worth looking at as well. So I, I I totally agree with model training. I've been wondering about this other thing though, and that's testing on GitHub. Like if you think about some of these CI pipelines, they can be big too. Like I've heard projects that yeah. take like an hour on every commit. I'd be curious to, to run this on that stuff as well. Yeah. Well, you could turn on, you could employ this as part of your CI CD. It doesn't really have to do with model training per se, but it, it does things like when you train models that use a GPU, it'll actually ask the GPU for the electrical current. Ah, right. Right. Oh, so okay. it goes that down into fa- the hardware. That's that, a that's fancy for, feature. Yeah, that's a yeah. fancy feature. And it goes down to like the CPU level, the CPU level voltage and all sorts of like low. It's not just, well, it ran for this long, so it's this. Right. Ah, it's like okay. really detailed. 
That said, I suspect you could actually answer the same question on, yeah. <laughs> on a CI, right? It would just say, well, it looks like you're training on a CPU. <laughs> <basically>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, true. Uh, but so uh, yeah, it's it's a nice way to be conscious about compute times and stuff. So that's uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's and exactly. what's cool is it has the the dashboard that like actually lets you explore. Like, well, if I were to shift it to Europe rather than train in the U.S., which who really cares where it trains? Would that, what it, difference would that have? Look so at how green Paraguay is for your hosting. Yeah, that's incredible. I suspect uh, a lot of waterfalls. Yeah, I know that some hydro of those countries yeah, yeah. down there have insane amounts of hydro. Uh, yeah. Chile, maybe I can't remember exactly, but yeah, yeah there's a lot of hydro. And you, see, and you see Iceland as well, and that's probably because of the volcanoes and warmth and heat and yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. the geo, yeah. Okay, yeah. interesting. All right. Nice. Brian, you got anything? No, not this week. How, so, how about we do a joke? Sounds good. <laughs> so uh, it's been a while since I've been to a strongest man competition. World's strongest man. You know, like maybe one of those things where you pick up like a telephone pole and you have to carry this, throw it as far as you can, or you lift like the heaviest barbells, or like you carry huge rocks some distance. So here's one of those things. There's like three judges, a bunch of people who look way over pumped. <laughs> They're all flexing, getting ready. The first one is this person carrying a huge rock, sweating clearly. And the judges are they're not super impressed. They give a five, a two, and a six. Then there's another one lifting this, you know, five hundred pound barbell over his head, says eight, seven, and six is their score. And then there's this particularly not overly strong looking person here. It says I don't code. I don't use Google when coding. Wow, so strong. The judges give him straight tens. <laughs> and 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 he's he's also being like really sincere, like his hand over his heart. <laughs> oh yeah, like that's a, <laughs> it's very humble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, that that's what I got for you. Take it, take it for what you will. That's pretty good. Just Stack Overflow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like Stack Overflow would be would give take it to eleven. Honestly. <laughs> I don't use Stack Overflow now. Yeah, you have a winner. <laughs> definitely. That's funny. Well, thanks for that. Um, you usually get pretty good about finding our jokes. So I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks, welcome. Vincent, for uh, coming on the show. Uh, yeah, I think th thanks for having me. Yeah. It's fun. I think that's a wrap. Yeah, that is. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Bye, Vincent. Y'all have a good one. <laughs>